Hi. It's been a week longer than expected for this episode, but then that's hardly surprising these days. How much has changed since I made an episode not that long ago about post-apocalyptic fiction, listing a global pandemic as one of the common tropes? So, anyway, here we are. This is episode 44, the tenth and final episode of season four. It was always going to be the end of the season while I regrouped and got some new material together. But now, more than ever, working from home whilst also trying to look after two small children, I definitely need some time. The good news is that I tend to do most of my interviews online, and the extensive research, script development, hosting, and production team is me. So, in a way, this podcast is fairly pandemic-ready. I'll get you up to speed with the plans for the new season at the end, though. For now, let me quickly introduce this week's episode, because it's one I'm very proud of. Last year, myself and Caroline Crampton of the wonderful podcast She Done It teamed up to create a joint live show. We called it Words Done It. We had a lot of fun making it and we performed it twice. First at the Dublin Podcast Festival last November, which is the recording you're about to hear, and then at the beginning of February at Pod UK in Birmingham. Now, I'll admit I'm not always a huge fan of podcast live shows because sometimes the recordings are not great compared to the regular show. Not this one. This was recorded live in a recording studio. The podcast studios in Dublin has a studio large enough to fit a decent crowd and get proper studio quality recording. Everyone wins. So here it is. Words Done It, live at the Dublin Podcast Festival, November 2019. I'm Connor Reid. And I'm Caroline Crampton. And this is... Words Done Words It? Words Done It, maybe? Yeah, we, we, go, with, we go with Words Done yeah. It. If there's such a thing known at the doctor's shop as a detective fever, that disease had now got fast hold of your humble servant. So states Gabriel Betteridge, one of the narrators in Wilkie Collins's The Moonstone. Published in 1868, it was one of the first ever detective novels in the English language. In 1868, detective fever had very much set in. 150 years later, the disease has got hold of us all and never let go. Detective fiction, and crime fiction more generally, is everywhere. Crime is the biggest selling genre of fiction. And last year in the UK, sales of crime fiction overtook sales of general fiction for the first time ever. Detective stories have found their way into every medium, from blockbuster films to stage shows, comic books, computer games, podcasts, not to mention the staggering number of detective TV shows. The detective story is a central part of our culture. It can be light entertainment and escapism or something far more serious, interrogating and questioning the world around us. And the story of how we all came to be gripped by detective fever, like the best detective stories themselves, is complex, intriguing and fascinating and full of twists and turns. There are lots of claims to the first ever detective story in English. In terms of influence, though, it's pretty well accepted that if you're going to start somewhere, you should start with Edgar Allan Poe. Poe is most famous now as a writer of macabre gothic tales, the author of the poem The Raven, or stories like The Telltale Heart. But he also invented, in C. Auguste Dupin, one of the first ever literary detectives, giving a shape to many of the features of the detective we would recognise today. Dupin uses his intelligence, deductive reasoning and skills of observance, what he calls ratiocination, to solve criminal cases. His skill is to think outside the box, to consider all possible angles, even if they've never actually occurred before. He first appeared in The Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1841. So this is really early, 1841. It's before detectives even existed in the US where Poe was writing, or in Britain or in Ireland. It was 1842 when the detective police were first established in London, and a few years later again when the first US detective forces were set up. There were detectives a little earlier in Paris, one of the reasons that um, Poe's Dupin stories are set there. 
And this early Parisian detective force, the Surete, was headed up by Eugène-Francois Vidoc, who is a fascinating character who had led an outrageously eventful life as a criminal before he managed to convince the authorities that he could understand the criminal mind far better than anyone else, and maybe he could help them catch criminals. So he got the job. And his memoirs were an instant bestseller and were read by Poe. Dupin is a familiar type of detective figure, especially because of his influence on Sherlock Holmes. Poe set in motion a lot of things, I think, that would be continued on throughout the century and beyond. Um, Right from the very first detective story, we have this idea of the police being inefficient and they have to be replaced by somebody who's more gifted. So Dupin is a kind of um, faded aristocrat. He lives in this gothic mansion with his companion and they hold themselves up all day reading books and acquiring knowledge. And then at night they go out into the streets arm in arm and they kind of flinner around and... um, he, he gets a certain kind of knowledge from that as well. He watches the crowd. So um, there, though these are things I think that, that Doyle especially would, would continue to use later on um, in the century. So this is Dr. Claire Clark, Assistant Professor of English in Trinity College Dublin around the corner, who I talk to about all things 19th century crime. In the murders in the Rue Morgue, an unnamed narrator and Dupin are out strolling. So they've said nothing for about 15 minutes when suddenly Dupin speaks, agreeing with the narrator about a certain actor's unsuitability for a part. The narrator has been thinking exactly this, and he's astounded at how Dupin could possibly have read his thoughts. So Dupin reveals how, for the last 15 minutes, he's been following the narrator's chain of thought, from when he first bumped into a fruit seller, through to reflections about the street paving, a recent conversation they'd had, and so on, right up until Dupin was sure he was thinking about the actor. For anyone familiar with Sherlock Holmes, it's a very recognisable feat of deduction. Small observations, seemingly unimportant or unconnected ideas, all adding up to a correct deduction. Another similarity to Holmes is the sidekick narrator, the Watson. The narrator is in awe of his enigmatic and intelligent friend, and like Holmes, often at a loss as to how Dupin can possibly have come to various conclusions. Unlike the Holmes tales, however, there's plenty of blood and violence in these stories. There's a lot of gore in these stories, which is something that sort of disappears as the century progresses. But around the time that he was writing, penny bloods, penny literature would have been very popular. So I think there was that kind of appetite for very gory stuff. So the penny bloods, or later penny dreadfuls, were the very cheap, they cost a penny, and very, very violent stories that were wildly popular in the middle of the 19th century. And of course, Poe was famously writing gothic literature and horror stories as well. So these are generically quite blurred, I think. Um, They have those elements of gothic and horror where there's very visceral descriptions of torn up bodies. There's a lot of blood um, and they can be quite disturbing to read in that way. And that's something that uh, doesn't really continue throughout the 19th century. That gradually disappears and the stories become more bloodless and less concerned with crimes of the body and more concerned with crimes to do with property. Now, if you lived in the mid-19th century and you considered yourself a little more respectable, if you weren't reading The Penny Bloods, then you were almost certainly reading Charles Dickens. I think Dickens is usually the person that's credited with with introducing the first detective as a protagonist in in um, British fiction with um, Inspector Bucket who pops up in Bleak House in 1858 I think um, I mean, Dickens was fascinated with crime policing and he wrote a huge amount of journalistic articles for his magazine Household Words on the development of the detective branch So he was writing right at the start of the 1850s. This detective branch had only been going for about 10 years and he's going along with them um, as a journalist on their kind of missions. He's also bringing them to the offices of Household Words and um, interviewing them and talking to them about how they detect and so on. And these articles have like really jolly names. They're called things like a detective police party. So he's, he's really doing a PR job for the police. This was a time when people were deeply suspicious of detectives. 
They were frequently compared to spies and they were far from welcomed by the victims of crime they were enlisted to help. The upper classes were not happy about a lower class, uneducated man invading their privacy and asking awkward questions. In Collins's The Moonstone, for example, a precious diamond goes missing and the best detective in the country is asked to help to solve the mystery. But the wealthy family and their guests are deeply unsettled by his presence in the house and attempt to send him away again. The servants, too, are unwilling to cooperate with the detective, and their attitude is typical of many in the working classes of this time, who would have been very suspicious of an authority figure snooping around their lives or asking them to account for their actions. So Dickens is really instrumental, I think, in beginning to change the perception of the police to something more positive. In these articles, he's talking about these men and he really emphasises their morality, their dedication, their skill, their respect. I mean, he enthuses at length about these characteristics. But quite a lot of critics now seem to think that, yes, in fact, Dickens did play a, a big part in a shift in attitudes towards the police through these these kinds of articles. So Dickens never wrote an outright detective story, although a few of his works came pretty close. The Moonstone, on the other hand, is much closer to what we would recognise as a modern detective tale and is often considered the first detective novel in English. And so through the 1860s and 70s, the detective story grew in popularity and real-life detectives became a more familiar concept. This was also the period of sensation fiction, a wildly popular genre that very much overlaps with the detective tale. Sensation fiction combines elements of the gothic with crime and mystery. The novels usually have a central mystery or terrible secret, someone trying to solve it, and lots of outrageous, i.e. sensational, plot elements that just about stay within the bounds of realism. The most famous examples are Wilkie Collins again with The Woman in White and Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Lady Audley's Secret. Yeah, Lady's Audley's Secret is a fantastic, absolutely mental novel in both plot and commercial success as well. It was basically the the gone girl of the 1860s. (laughs) And then in 1887, everything changed. Is that right? I mean, did... Did everything change? No, no, actually, not really. Um, 1887 was the year of the publication of A Study of Scarlet, the first uh, Sherlock Holmes story. But actually, it wasn't really that much of a success. Partly, this is to do with the form of the story. Um, It's funny, if you're familiar with Holmes from film and TV, and you've maybe read a few of the classic short stories... A Study in Scarlet is kind of a very odd experience. The entire second half of the novel is set in Utah in the 1840s. And it's just like it's so unlike anything else or anything we kind of imagine when we think of Holmes. Whenever there are adaptations of A Study in Scarlet, the, whoever's adapting it kind of just goes, eh, we'll just leave that bit out. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of unusual. However, the novel was good enough for Arthur Conan Doyle to get a commission for another Holmes novel, The Sign of Four, which was published in 1890. And it's a story that's very strongly indebted to Collins's Moonstone. It wasn't hugely successful either, but crucially, the key elements of Holmes's character were starting to come together. And when Doyle created a series of Holmes short stories for the Strand magazine, they exploded in popularity. Yeah, the short story form is exactly what Sherlock Holmes needed. It's an absolutely ideal fit. But it's just one part of a sort of perfect storm of elements that came together to make Holmes the timeless figure he's become. A figure who, like Frankenstein's monster, has long transcended his original creator. There are lots of reasons we're drawn to Holmes. For one, he's adaptable across generations, easy to update and be recreated by new actors. All of you in the audience here now will most likely have someone who is Sherlock Holmes for you, whether that's Benedict Cumberbatch or Robert Downey Jr. or Jeremy Brett or Peter Cushing. Holmes' character is always intriguing. Holmes is is enigmatic uh, as well. We have Watson. Watson's very solidly middle class and the reader can identify with him. They know that he's moral. They know that he's a good guy. Um, 
with homes we're not we're not so sure I don't think we we can see somebody who kind of operates on those boundaries between detective and criminal so while he usually does the right thing he doesn't always he's you know he says to Watson on, on a number of occasions I'd have made an excellent criminal if I did have decided to turn my mind to that he shows a huge amount of admiration for the criminals who are really good at their jobs so um, he takes drugs on occasion he he has these weird behaviours there's just something kind of undefinable and enigmatic about him that I think was interesting right back in the 1890s and is still interesting today and of course, the other thing about the Sherlock Holmes stories is that they're written by Arthur Conan Doyle. And Doyle is an incredibly skilled writer of genre fiction. Doyle, I think, as well, is, as Professor Daryl Jones has said, the best writer of genre fiction of the 19th century. It's true. Professor Daryl Jones has said this. Well, for me, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle is unquestionably the greatest genre writer um, has ever ever produced, looked at in the round. Uh, this was somebody who made obviously very, very major contributions to uh, to the field of crime writing and de- detective fiction. Uh, but he also made very significant contributions to to, to historical fiction. He saw himself. Uh, wanted to see himself primarily as a as a historical novelist. That's what he where he thought his best work lay. He also wrote horror fiction, gothic tales of of, of various kinds, which um, reflected his own developing interest, developing across the course of his life in the spirit world, uh, the occult. And the supernatural. Uh, so, so he he wrote a variety of these things. He wrote nautical tales, seafaring tales, adventure stories. Uh, he was a great um, writer of the British Empire. In fact, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got his knighthood, not unfortunately for services to detective fiction, which you know really should have been the case, but actually because of his services to the British Empire in the shape of his writing about the Boer War. Doyle may have created a memorable and lucrative literary character in Sherlock Holmes, but that doesn't mean he was particularly happy about the situation. Yeah, his hatred of Holmes is very well known. He very quickly felt burdened by his creation, a character the public demanded more and more of. And as Professor Jones points out, Doyle himself did not see Holmes as his greatest work. Far from it. His grand historical fiction, now very rarely read, was his passion. And in later years, it was his fervent devotion to spiritualism that that occupied him. In fact, in the later Holmes years, the stories simply became a way of funding Doyle's advocacy work for spiritualism. Spiritualism, by the way, was the hugely popular and surprisingly mainstream belief in the in this kind of period that communication with the dead was possible. This was a period of interest in table wrappings and seances and spirit mediums and this sort of thing. And Doyle was an ardent believer. Now, Doyle may have grown tired of his consulting detective, but the reading public was definitely not done with the detective story. Doyle killed off Holmes in 1893, (gasps) but there were plenty of people willing to fill the gap. At least until Doyle was forced to bring Holmes back again. Such was the public outcry. Imitators and knockoffs appeared everywhere. As with any suddenly popular form, writers started switching genres to write detective stories in the Holmes model. There was also lots of other detective fiction in this period, around the end of the 19th and the early 20th century. Today, however, it just gets completely overshadowed by Sherlock Holmes. So one of these works was Fergus Hume's The Mystery of the Handsome Cab, published in 1887, the same year you'll remember as Doyle's A Study in Scarlet. By contrast, we have Fergus Hume, who is a New Zealand um, national who's based in Australia, and he publishes this what has been called a late sensation novel, but it's a a sensation novel that features a couple of police detectives who are massively corrupt. And he publishes this, first of all, in Melbourne, and it sells out within days, and people can't get enough of it. And he unfortunately sells the copyright to um, a rather unscrupulous businessman for a very small amount of money, and then it's republished in England, where it once again sells in its hundreds of thousands. So 
Um, Doyle is pretty bitter about this. When you read his letters to his mother, he kind of says, oh, I've read The Mystery of a Handsome Cab. It's a scam. It's terrible. Um, it's been sold just by puffing. Um, you know, he really doesn't like the fact that it's done so well. But that's a, a novel that somehow gets omitted from from most people's memories, I think, of um, the development of the detective genre. Then there were also the imitators, those who saw the success of Doyle and Hume and wanted in on the action. Authorship was getting professionalised and people were happy to write to order. A few of my favourites, I guess, would be um, an Irish writer called um, Elizabeth Thomasina Mead, who um, is from Cork. She's a very business-like writer. She started off writing children's girls' books. And as soon as detective fiction exploded, she changed. She completely changed and started writing detective stories. And um, her first sort of few series of detective stories feature doctors usually as investigators. So I I guess she's been credited with inventing the medical mystery. So if we don't have her, we don't have things like diagnosis murder. Um, And what a loss that would be. What a loss. Well, think about it for a minute. Why would a man set the timer for a pot of morning coffee if he was going to kill himself the night before? Habit? Well, maybe. How about this? He makes the coffee, sets the timer, watches a little TV, gets depressed, and uh, swallows a handful of pills. What do you suppose he was watching? Another writer that I really love who is not massively well-known anymore is Arthur Morrison, who, um, if he's known at all, is as a writer of slum novels, so novels that are depicting... Um, the, the brutality of life in the London slums in the 1880s and 1890s. These are very brutal, pessimistic novels. Um, but interestingly, he was also a kind of jobbing writer, so he turned his hand to detective fiction as well. And when Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock in 1893, the Strand immediately asked Morrison to um, supply a replacement and he came up with this detective character called Martin Hewitt. Now Martin Hewitt doesn't really stand the test of time very well because I think what what um, Morrison did with those stories is really just write slightly inferior Sherlock Holmes stories um, with a character who is based on, a, on the identification of opposites. So Hewitt is an everyman. He's friendly and nice and polite. The police love him. So he's basically the anti-Holmes, which means he's also really dull. He went on to create a second detective called Horace Dorrington, who is much more interesting. He is, um, I guess, a combination of that slum fiction and detective fiction. Um, Dorrington comes from Deptford in the East End. He starts out working for a moneylender. He goes and he basically strong arms people into paying debts. He eventually um, steals from his employer enough money to set himself up in business with a very respectable looking detective agency that's obviously modelled on the the Sherlock idea. But he steals from his clients and sometimes he murders them. So as these are brilliant. I, I find them absolutely fascinating. They were published in 1897 and I think they really kind of puncture that idea that Victorian detective fiction is conservative, is all about the restoration of order um, and that detectives are very moral and so on. He's already at that point starting to play with that idea and kind of invert it and therefore, you know, much more like the kind of detectives that we see in our popular culture now. And the difference between these two detectives, the everyman Hewitt, who is ultimately fairly dull, and the complex and morally compromised Dorrington, is a difference in the character of the central detective, not necessarily a clever plot twist or an elaborate crime or anything else. The best detective fiction has, at its heart, truly memorable detectives. And then, 
1914, everything changed. Really? This again? No, no, it really did change this time. It was 1914. It was the start of the war. Okay, fine. So, the First World War completely upended the way detective fiction was written and enjoyed. Yep, this is true. In the aftermath of the horror and the carnage, survivors wanted to cast off the gloom of the past four years and enjoy themselves. The day the armistice was signed in November 1918 was actually a moment of great revelry and celebration, with people commandeering buses to turn into mobile party vehicles, dancing in the streets and having one-night stands with strangers. The reverential memorials of the end of the war, where people wore black and laid wreaths of poppies, came in later years. The first collective reaction to the end of the war was to give high spirits free reign and let off steam. And this atmosphere quickly found its way into the popular culture and pastimes of this post-war moment. Something called play fever swept through the UK with crosswords, parlour games, treasure hunts and puzzles, suddenly really common leisure activities. And it was this interest in cerebral distraction that helped to bring about an especially prolific period for detective fiction. From the early 1920s onwards, crime writers built on the work of Poe and Doyle and others who'd come before them with huge success. There are detective novels from this time that deal directly with the aftermath of the First World War, such as The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club by Dorothy L. Sayers from 1928, which is set in a gentleman's club for war veterans in London and revolves around the memorial events of the 11th of November. Most stories from this time, though, address the war more obliquely, if at all, and instead focus on creating an entertaining and suspenseful plot. This period from the early 1920s until roughly the start of the Second World War became known as the Golden Age of Detective Fiction. The reading public seemed to have an insatiable appetite for stories where sleuths standing in for the reader pitted their wits against criminals trying to get away with murder in all sorts of creative ways. To give you some idea of just how popular they were, it's said that by 1939 a quarter of all fiction being published in the UK was crime fiction. Many of these books were seen as another form of puzzle, another form of light-hearted post-war distraction from the difficulties of life. One critic, Alison Light, calls the detective fiction of this time a literature of convalescence for this reason. The world was in recovery after a period of major trauma, so serious, heavy fiction was unlikely to do the trick. Detective fiction, though, keeps the mind engaged without challenging it unduly. Light argues that the overall effect of these books is preoccupying, the mental equivalent of pottering, which works more to relieve generalised anxiety than to generate strong emotion. Of course, this isn't to say that detective fiction suddenly changed as soon as the First World War ended. Literary boundaries are always porous. There were books published before 1914 that exhibited a lot of the characteristics that would later be associated with the Golden Age. And many of the crime writers in the 1920s looked up to authors like G.K. Chesterton and Arthur Conan Doyle, and they thought of their own work as more or less of a continuation. Later, the label Golden Age has also come to be associated with a, a certain style and set of tropes, so you might still see novels being published today that are described as Golden Age. In addition, several of the leading detective novelists in the interwar period had long careers spanning many decades, so it's not always clear when their work just sort of stops being golden age in that way. It's all a little complicated, but there are a number of characteristics of a detective story from the golden age. Even if you've never really thought about this precisely, most of these will be familiar to you, I expect. Here's critic Howard Haycraft summing up the post-First World War detective story. The new style story is more natural, more plausible, more closely related to real life than the old style, and it's generally better written. The author is more careful to play fair with his readers. Attempts to startle and amaze are fewer, there is less hokum, or at least the hokum is less obvious and obtrusive. And the detectives are less eccentric and more human, less omniscient and more fallible. Fair play was felt to be very important too, which meant that all the clues to the murderer's identity should be planted through the story so that readers could work it out before the detective, if they were smart enough. As a result, red herrings, such as false clues or suspects planted by the writer to distract both sleuth and reader, make a regular appearance as writers tried to walk the line between playing fair and keeping the reader in the dark. Another popular trope is the closed circle of suspects. 
somebody in this room. Um, this can be created either with a location, like a country house or a train, or you might have external conditions like terrible weather. But either way, it keeps a list of possible murderers very short and rules out a less satisfying, a random stranger did it sort of an ending. The locked room murder is also a golden age classic where a victim is found dead in a secure room despite the fact that it seems like nobody could have got in to kill them. And this setup exists before the golden age and and actually Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue is one of the earliest examples of it. But by the 1920s, the locked room mystery was so popular that you could almost consider it a subgenre of its own. It acquired a, a second name, the impossible crime, and writers like John Dixon Carr in the 1930s pushed the possibilities of this device even further. With the popularity of detective fiction thriving in the 1920s, some of the foremost practitioners of this genre began to feel like they wanted some kind of collective, a group where they could meet and discuss their work. The result was the founding of The Detection Club in 1930, which brought together writers like Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham, Anthony Barclay and others. Barclay and Sayers were the prime movers in the enterprise, appointing G.K. Chesterton as the club's first president and creating an elaborate and satirical ritual to initiate new members. Now, this ritual was mostly a bit of harmless fun and exactly the kind of thing you might assume that crime novelists would get up to. New members had to swear an oath on Eric the Skull, a real skull, that they would uphold the principle of fair play at all times in their work. It says... We should have brought a skull. (laughs) Do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect the crimes presented to them, using those wits which may please you to bestow upon them, not placing reliance on nor making use of divine revelation feminine intuition, mumbo-jumbo, jiggery-pokery, coincidence, or act of God. There's a lot of jiggery-pokery, hokum-pokum, jiggery, (laughs) mumbo-jumbo, and so on. But in addition to the theatrics, though, the Detection Club authors collaborated on a few projects, including the 1931 round-robin novel, The Floating Admiral, in which each of the 12 chapters of a mystery was written by a different writer, but with their own solution in mind and no overall plan or scheme. It actually works better than you might expect, although the best part of the book is actually the appendix, where each writer lays out who they thought the murderer should be while they were writing their chapter, and they disagree utterly, I have to say. The club, though, still exists today, um, with contemporary crime writers keeping up the traditional annual dinner in London. Ronald Knox, a detection club member who was also a Catholic priest and a theologian, made another very important contribution to the continued development of the genre in 1929 when he published his Ten Commandments for Golden Age Detective Fiction. His rules are... 1. The criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. 2. All supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. 3. Not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. (laughs) 4. No hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. 5. No Chinaman must figure in the story. Six, no accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition which proves to be right. Seven, the detective must not himself commit the murder. (laughs) The detective, number eight, the detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. Nine, the stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly, but very slightly, below that of the average reader. (laughs) Poor Watson. Ten twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear, unless we've been duly prepared for them. Knox was definitely being tongue-in-cheek with a lot of this. You can tell by the way it's written. And number five, No Chinaman, is a response to some of the racial stereotyping found in the Penny Dreadfuls and pulp novels of this time. So it's actually more of a piece of commentary than a rule for writing as such. But the overall shape and direction of these rules encapsulates a lot of what lay behind the developments in detective fiction in this period. A heavy emphasis on fair play and transparency with the reader and a general aversion to unexplained or supernatural interferences that might affect the plausibility of the plot. It's all there in those Ten Commandments.
Of course, one name stands out above all others when thinking about detective writers from this period. Agatha Christie published her first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, in 1920, and she would go on to write 66 more novels and 14 short story collections before her death in 1976. Her most famous sleuth, the retired Belgian policeman and First World War refugee Hercule Poirot, is introduced in that first novel. Miss Marple, her elderly spinster with the dazzling analytical mind, came along in a series of stories that began appearing in monthly fiction magazines in 1927, before being collected together as a book called The Thirteen Problems in 1932. Christie had other regular detective characters as well, including married couple Tommy and Tuppence, the crime writer Mrs Oliver, Parker Pine and Mr Satterthwaite. But it is Poirot and Marple that achieved global recognition and continued to be adapted on screen today. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly why Christie is, for so many people, the definitive detective novelist from the interwar period. I'm sure there are plenty of Christie fans here. I mean, not least because so much of her work was actually published in later decades. Critical consensus has kind of ebbed and flowed about whether her writing is genuinely of high quality or if the attraction lies solely in her skill with puzzles. Either way, she is one of the best-selling authors of all time, and her 1939 thriller And Then There Were None is said to have sold something over 100 million copies since it was published. But anyone who's ever curled up with one of her books on a cold winter's night will know that there's just something about them in that Goldilocks way. They're neither too complicated nor too simple. They're not too long or too short. They're just right in that post-First World War way to empty your brain of other things for a while and get drawn into a puzzle. That said, the 1920s and early early 30s saw several other authors debut detective characters who had a major impact on the genre too. Dorothy L. Sayers' Lord Peter Whimsey first appeared in 1923, Marjorie Allingham's Albert Campion and Gladys Mitchell's Mrs. Bradley both came along in 1929, and Naya Marsh's Roderick Allen turned up in 1934. The label Queen of Crime might be most associated with Christie, but it's also been applied at different times to all of these authors, in recognition of the popularity and influence they enjoyed during their lifetimes and beyond. Sayers and Allingham are still pretty widely read today, But Mitchell and Marsh both experienced something of a slump in the latter part of the 20th century, although new editions and biographies have heralded a revival in their readership more recently. You might have noticed that although crime seems to have plenty of queens, there aren't any kings. Many of the most prominent detective novelists during this time and since have been women, partly because perhaps of a sense that as genre fiction, crime writing was less important and thus there was less prejudice from tastemakers than when it comes to so-called literary fiction. It's interesting to note, though, that although both male and female authors wrote about women detectives right from the early days of the genre, there weren't actually any real-life women detectives until much later. So Baroness Ortsy, for example, most famous for creating the Scarlet Pimpernel, also wrote lots of detective stories. Her Lady Molly of Scotland Yard was a female detective before there were any real female detectives of Scotland Yard. It is odd, given how incredibly popular detective fiction was in the Golden Age period, how relatively few authors have survived in the popular imagination since. As well as the queens of crime, writers like G.D.H. and Margaret Cole, Clements Dane, Helen Simpson, E.C.R. Lorak, Christiana Brand, E.R. Punchin and many others were also churning out whodunits for their fans during this time, and yet their books are often now out of print and hard to obtain. In some cases, you might argue that it's just because their stuff is of lesser quality, but I find that hard to believe completely. Reissuing projects like the classic crime imprint at the British Library are gradually making some of these works more accessible, and there are some real gems in there that are finding new readers every day. First World War helped to create the market for Golden Age detective fiction, then the outbreak of the Second World War marked the end of that phase. That post-trauma appetite for escapist puzzles ebbed away in the face of another catastrophic global conflict. Societal norms were shifting fast, the prescribed class roles and stereotypes that had bolstered the conventions of interwar detective fiction were beginning to break down. The world was changing and crime fiction had to change with it. 
Here's Moira Redmond, a journalist and longtime fan of detective fiction, explaining a little bit more. It was George Orwell, I think, wasn't it, who said, well, as the divorce laws get easier, will there be fewer murders? Because people don't need to, to, to murder their partner anymore, they'll divorce them. Maybe it wasn't quite as stark as that, but it's certainly true that the post-World War II detective novel began to grapple with bigger issues than it had in the interwar period. A lot of stuff that's in the 50s would be considered golden age if it had been written 10 years earlier. But the differences are that people were able to write more freely about sex and so on. And that there's sometimes a perception that the 50s murder stories were a bit, they were very middle class. They were about people talking in very um, stilted way as they had another sherry. But actually, they were looking deep into family life in a way that some of the 30s books weren't able to do so much. So that actually, they're really interesting direction to go in. Another thing was that they reflected a feeling of restlessness after the war, that people had moved. Agatha Christie's very big on this, that people weren't as sure of their roots after the war, and that's reflected in the fiction. Some big names like Agatha Christie and Marjorie Allingham kept writing stories for sleuths that they'd created in the 1920s, although their fictional worlds shifted in subtle ways to take account of the war and its aftermath. There were fewer country house parties, for one thing. Those writers were able to, partly just because of development as a writer, but that they were able to write much deeper stories. So Marjorie Allingham, for example, starts off in the Golden Age as writing light-hearted stories about looking for the treasures and then is writing in post-war London and describing, you know, in Tiger in the Smoke, a post-war London that very few people were able to draw in that way and that therefore the genre changed a lot and became deeper in some ways. I mean, even before the war, there had been reactions to Golden Age detective fiction, especially in the US with the emergence of hard-boiled detective. Every generation of writers likes to dismiss what has come before. The previous generation is tired and stale and out of touch. The novels of today, my novels, truly represent and reflect society. And so detective authors like Raymond Chandler saw themselves as writing against the Golden Age novelists, particularly the, the genteel works of the likes of Sayers and Marsh and Allingham. Chandler's works, as he saw it, were gritty and pared down and, most importantly, reflected real crime and real life. He wrote a polemic, The Simple Art of Murder, and it rails against the Golden Age authors and praises Dashiell Hammett, another hard-boiled author, for bringing, quote, murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse. And with the means at hand, not with hand-wrought dueling pistols, curare, and tropical fish. <laughs> now, however seriously you take these criticisms, and however much you might agree with them, detective fiction was changing and fracturing in the lead-up to and especially after the Second World War. Another writer whose bibliography is an excellent way of tracking the changes in the genre is Michael Gilbert, a solicitor who moonlighted as a detective novelist. Unusually, he had no recurring detective character, instead completely altering his style and personalities. Michael Gilbert starts off with a very conventional Golden Age puzzle called Close Quarters, which is set in a cathedral close and involves, I think, a clue in a crossword. I mean, nothing could be more Golden Age. And although it came out in, I think, 1948, something like that, I think he'd actually written it before the war and had kept it back. Then he started writing just much more. They're very entertaining. They're very thrillerish in some ways, but it's also good crime novels, which just, again, they show life in England and in London in a very post-war sense. The Smallbone Deceased, set in a solicitor's office, which, A, is very good. I love books that feature office life. But in his books, he, he had a very active war, and I think he was in a prison of war camp, and he wrote a book called Death and Captivity, which is set in a, a POW camp, which is an amazing book. He wrote books where there was a sort of leftover, as it might be from the French resistance, people turning up in London, what did they do in the war, that kind of thing. He also wrote books about corruption in local government. I mean, he wrote a really unexpected range of books. And so into the 1960s, the sense that crime fiction is loosening up becomes more pronounced. The 60s life is seen as getting very liberated, very a lot more sexual freedom, but also that kitchen sink element that we're more interested perhaps in working class people than, than might have been the case in the past. Two important 60s writers would be P.D. James and Ruth Rendell, who got going in the 60s, although they didn't really reach their fame and importance till the 70s or 80s. Things are changing. The crime is going to cover a lot more areas. 
it's not going to be closed circles so much and it's not going to be oh he killed her because he wants to inherit the money it's a bit more complex than that and certainly a lot more sexual than that a central device of the golden age and earlier disappears too from the mid-20th century onwards, there are far more professional police detectives in crime fiction than gifted amateurs like Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes. Enjoyable as those characters are, they begin to fail that plausibility test for good detective fiction. I think there's a point after which you'd be really surprised if the policeman said, well, we'd quite welcome some help from a, an important amateur like yourself, somebody who knows the family. I think you would not be at all surprised by that up to, let's say, 1955. <laughs> and from then on, I'm going to say we don't have that anymore. Everybody sees that actually the gifted amateur didn't really exist and would have been hated and rejected if they tried. Instead, in the 1970s, we begin to see writers like Colin Dexter experimenting within the confines of the police procedural. Inspector Morse is a professional detective and a policeman, but he's also an eccentric maverick with some traits that might not seem out of place in an amateur sleuth from 60 years earlier. It's a really interesting way of bringing the most portable tropes forward from a period in crime fiction that now seems twee and stylized, while also keeping up with the modern age. And alongside the police procedural, and often very closely intertwined with it, is the forensic-dominated detective story. I'm sure we're all familiar with this sort of thing. You talk me through what you're doing. Okay, this is uh, the jacket worn by our suspect, Hector Rivera. We believe that he stabbed Gabriel Cervantes, so I'm going to run what's called... A luminol test. Yeah, what's luminol? Luminol is a uh, compound that when it interacts with the iron and hemoglobin, it'll uh, luminesce. You mean blood? Yeah, nothing vanishes without a trace, especially blood. Stabbings are very bloody, so if there is blood on this jacket, luminol will cause it to glow. Oh, cool. <laughs> Another uh, word for it is uh, evidence. You can probably guess what show that's from. <laughs> so, although shows like CSI and books like Ellie Griffiths about forensic archaeologist Ruth Galloway put cutting-edge science and technology at the heart of their plots, this subgenre has a long history. They might not have known about luminescent blood detective spray, but as we've heard, the late 19th century author L.T. Mead was writing accomplished medical mysteries over 100 years ago. She wasn't the only one experimenting with forensics at this time either. The British author R. Austin Freeman debuted a recurring character in 1907 called Dr. Thorndike, who's described as a medical jurist practitioner, which essentially amounts to what we would today call a forensic investigator. You can't walk through an airport these days without seeing lots of titles from another major detective fiction subgenre everywhere, the serial killer novel. Like the locked room or impossible crime books of the early 20th century, these stories too often have only a very tenuous connection to the reality of murder. Although there obviously are real-life serial killers, crime statistics show that they account for less than 1% of the murders that happen. In books, though, they're a lot more common. There are examples from the Golden Age, such as J. Jefferson Fargin's The Z Murders from 1932 and Agatha Christie's The ABC Murders from 1936, but the last couple of decades have seen huge growth in this area. You'll find serial killers in books by everyone from Karen Slaughter to Joe Nesbo to Dean Koontz and more. It's one of the things that I find mysterious, actually. I really don't know because it is such a huge subgenre which kind of came from nowhere almost. And although I, mean, I think serial killing is one of those things where it's much, much less common than anybody ever thinks. It just isn't happening. Although then you get something like the recent news story where this man was revealed of having killed 80 people over a certain number of years. I don't know. I, it's a mystery as to where it came from. I think people just found that it made for a good structure for a book and other people obviously like reading them. True. And another major strand to today's crime fiction is what we call domestic noir. It doesn't really uh, have as many detectives, but it's definitely a hugely important part of today's fiction. So here's Claire Clark again to explain what the term means and its long roots back to the early days of detective stories. This is probably the most uh, famous and best-selling subgenre of crime fiction at the moment. It's domestic noir, which is... Um, 
mostly written by women and mostly revolves around women's experiences of crime within the home or within a domestic setting. That that feeds right back to sensation novels of the 1860s and 70s, where all of a sudden those writers took crime out of the streets and put it into the home. And often sensation novels were about women at peril from their husbands or their suitors who were trying to either murder them, put them in asylum, steal their inheritance, any any of these kinds of things. Now, obviously, there's not so much of the inheritance theft in, in modern um, domestic noir, but certainly, you know, it, it, it keeps from sensation fiction that sense of the home as a potentially dangerous space and one's partner or one's husband as someone who has great potential to do harm as a woman. The modern incarnation of this, as seen in titles like The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins and The Couple Next Door by Shari Lapina, reflects the way that society has slowly become a little more open about the dangers that people, especially women, can face within the home. I think in the past, we'd see the obnoxious husband or wife get kicked off. But what we wouldn't see was a dissection of the relationship leading up to Now, that's a broad stroke. Obviously, some books, it existed, I'm sure. But we're getting now books that really, really dissect, you know, emotionally abusive relationships, which is people seem to have an unending thirst for these kinds of books. That's Lee Randall, the curator of the Granite Noir Crime Festival in Aberdeen. She's observed this subgenre closely in the last half decade or so. Detective novelists, of course, have always been interested in the why of a crime, the psychology behind it, as well as the how. But some subjects remained off limits for fiction, even if the writers were experiencing them in real life. It's taken me a long time to understand that there are many things about reputation that create problems for people back in the day. So you've got Dorothy Sayers hiding the fact that she had an illegitimate child. You have Agatha Christie not wanting people to know she, her marriage was uh, broken down. You've got all those kinds of things that used to be, we can't talk about it. And nowadays, there are fewer things that we can't talk about. Not to say they're any less painful. So I, I think, you know, fiction always reflects the times we live in. Which brings us up to the times we live in right now, contemporary detective fiction. For so many readers of detective fiction today, when you think of international fiction, you think of Scandinavia. Henning Mankell's Wallander novels have sold tens of millions of copies worldwide. Stieg Larsson's Millennium series, starting with The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, was an international phenomenon when it first came out. And that was before the Swedish and then Hollywood film adaptations. The Norwegian author Joe Nesbo's books, especially those featuring Inspector Harry Hole, have been translated into dozens of languages and, like Mankell and Larsen, sold tens of millions of copies worldwide. Of all the detective fiction from around the world translated into English, Scandinavian authors are disproportionately represented, topping bestseller lists. Not just those mentioned, but Asa Larsen, Peter Ho, Camilla Grieb and so many others. Why? Good question. <laughs> Well, like all of these things, it can be hard to pinpoint exactly. Not uncoincidentally, I think Scandinavia has just become very on trend in recent years. You know, you're at home, sitting in your mid-century Scandi living room, feeling all huga, eating your smorabrot open-faced sandwich and browsing your best restaurant in the world, Noma cookbook. Well, then you should be reading some Scandinavian noir, shouldn't you? And this fascination extends to the politics and institutions of Scandinavian countries as well. I mean, across the world, and I think in Britain and Ireland in particular, we look to countries like Sweden or Denmark as these sort of utopias of left-wing good governance and welfare. But there's a dark side to Scandinavian life, and not just literally in the moody, windswept subarctic regions in the north. The violence, institutional corruption, racism or deep-seated misogyny that features so prominently in Scandinavian crime fiction is all the more stark when set against our impressions of the region. I mean, the Swedish title of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is simply Men Who Hate Women. True. (laughs) 
And there's also the geographic setting. The, the landscapes are beautiful and maybe for us they're exotic. Um, and, and this works particularly well then on TV where Scandi Noir is a booming category of detective show with Wallander and The Killing and The Bridge and so many others. And then these shows have set a tone and a look and feel for others set outside Scandinavia. So you have Top of the Lake in New Zealand or Secret City in Australia. And all this highlights the global nature of 21st century detective fiction. There's a comfort, perhaps, in being able to explore distant or unusual places within the familiar structures of the genre. The detective characters, the police forces, the crimes might be familiar, but the location will be new and fascinating. I love the Inspector Montalbano books by the Italian writer Andrea Camilleri, who sadly died just a few months ago, but he was 93. And the Sicilian way of life, the island setting where the mafia are, they're a presence, but they're never used in this really overblown way. And of course, the opportunity to eat beautiful Italian food vicariously through the inspector. And it too has had very, very successful British and Italian TV adaptations. The distant setting can also work using time. Historical detective fiction is a whole subgenre in itself. Umberto Eco, another Italian novelist, published The Name of the Rose in 1980. It's a historical murder mystery set in a monastery in the 14th century. It was a huge bestseller, which, all things considered, was pretty unlikely. A detective story centering on medieval theology by an Italian academic whose previous publication had been Explorations in the Semiotics of Texts. <laughs> And The Name of the Rose is also a novel which, being Umberto Eco, is supremely aware of the genre it fits into. And it draws on Poe and Doyle and Golden Age fiction alongside Borges and other writers of more literary detective fiction. But while it looks to the Holmes novels in particular, so the main character is called William of Baskerville, as in The Hand of the Baskerville, and it, it also complicates and undermines the idea of using straightforward deduction and reasoning to arrive at the truth. Maybe the detective has to come to terms with the fact that there could be multiple truths or that some crimes may not be explicable at all. In 21st century crime fiction too, there's plenty of questioning of the models of crime and criminals, detection, policing and justice. And historical crime fiction and what might be called postmodern detective fiction, like Echo's novel, are just the tip of the iceberg. There's supernatural detective fiction, going right back to the early days of crime fiction in the 19th century, and up to fantasy detectives like Jim Butcher's Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden, detective and wizard. There are science fiction detective novel stories like uh, China Mieville's The City in the City, which is a fantastic novel, or Adam Roberts' Jack Glass. You have horror detective novels, maybe like Thomas Harris's Hannibal Lecter books, and on. And the 21st century has seen the detective genre infiltrate so many others in literature, TV, film, comic books, computer games, and more. And this fracturing of genres, styles, media, it's also come with a move towards far more diverse representation. Genre, as we've seen, has long been relatively well balanced in terms of gender, but detectives have, for most of the genre's history, tended to be straight, white, middle class and well-educated. That has shifted a lot more recently, though, with more diverse crime writers finding readers and recognition for a wider range of characters and plots. To give just a few examples from those writing now, there's A.A. Dan's British Asian Sikh detective, Harry Verdi, who operates in Bradford. Kwe Kwate, born and raised in Ghana and now living in America, writes police procedurals set in Ghana's capital, Accra. Steph Cha is writing a new chapter in the crime fiction story of Los Angeles with her Korean-American private investigator, Juniper Song. Renee James has created a trans woman protagonist in Bobby Logan, one of Chicago's most celebrated hairstylists who turns to sleuthing to find the truth when her life starts to fall apart. So in short, it's no longer the case that only straight white authors publish successful crime novels. So why read detective fiction at all? Beyond the entertainment, the puzzles, the great detective characters, all important in themselves, what is the role of detective fiction in our society? What can it tell us about how we understand ourselves and think about the world? Here's Claire Clark again. The best detective fiction raises questions, I think, about institutions. So the church, the state, the police, um, 
all of those kind of institutions in which we have traditionally tr- placed our trust. And, um, you know, just as good journalism uncovers corruption and wrongdoing in those institutions, crime fiction can examine those as well. And, um, you know, I think in the in the modern world, more than ever, we we um, are increasingly not turning away from those kind of uncomfortable truths about institutions. Just as so many detectives interrogate their suspects to get to the truth, detective fiction plays a crucial and fascinating role in interrogating the world around us. And it has a lot of fun in the process. Thank you. that's it for another episode and season of words to that effect thank you so much for listening you can find out more about this episode and all the episodes at wttepodcast.com and i'll keep you up to date there about new developments as well you can also follow me on twitter i'm at cedreid c-e-d-r-e-i-d or the show is on Facebook and Instagram at Words to That Effect. You can check out Caroline's show if you aren't already a regular listener at shedoneitshow.com. The music for the live show was from Blue Dot Sessions. Season 5 is in the works. I'm only six shows off episode 50, for which I'll have to do something special, although I'm not entirely sure what yet. If you have any suggestions, please get in touch. And if you miss the show during the break, you can always become a patron at patreon.com slash WTTE and get access to bonus episodes and lots of other nice things. And I'll be putting some new bonus content there over the break as well. And please know that I am incredibly grateful for all the support, especially these days. So thank you to all the patrons of the show. You guys are amazing. If you're not in a position to become a patron, that is quite all right. This show will always be free for anyone who wants to listen. But maybe instead you could tell a friend, spread the word, and help me find new listeners and help grow the show. And that's it. I hope when the new season kicks off, things have returned to some semblance of normality. In the meantime, keep safe and well, and I'll see you for season five. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.